Hello, guys, and welcome to your Una Series podcast. My name is Boniface. I'm the co-founder of Una Series, and with me today is Matt Phelan. Hi, Matt. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your time. I know you're a very busy man. Um, I want you to introduce yourself because you have lots to say, and I love, I, I've read about you, of course, getting ready for this. So, But I want you to tell us in your words how you came to become I want to say a happiness expert if that's possible um but before that i want to say that i want to thank casey who works with us at una for putting us together because she's the link here and she does a great job at finding great minds and she knows that at una series we're trying to work so much at putting things together transversely health and happiness and mind set and mind health and you're you know the pinnacle of all of this you put it together through your journey so Matt, before we dive in into the happiness index that you are the CEO and co-founder of, I would like to hear about you and how did you become a happiness expert? So uh, firstly, I would I, um, it's very nice to be described as a happiness expert, but I would just, for the listeners, I would never describe myself as a happiness expert. Um, what I will... Sorry, I should... I, no, no, I it's, it not a pro, it's not a problem because... I've written a book on happiness, so that's kind of a, a, a valid assumption. Um, what um, I will try and do in all your questions and all our conversation today, Boniface, is not represent me. If you ask my opinion, I'll give you my opinion. But what I'm going to try and do today is represent um, hundreds of thousands and millions of employees all around the world and what their story, stories and their feelings and emotions have taught us. So... I'm not going to, uh, where possible, I'm not going to try and give you my experience. I'm going to try and give you the experience of hundreds of thousands and millions of people from 100 different countries, which is going to be difficult in 45 minutes to try and get that together. But I've, um, I, I know you're an expert at, the, at being a questioner, so maybe um, I'll, I'll pass that back to you to work out how we work that. So, well, that's, I love that. High, high state goals. Um, so, Matt, let's just start with, and I love, I know you, you work with data. Obviously, you're going to share data with us, which is how you gathered all, all, all of these emotions that people might have felt in the workspace. So, how did it start for you, the desire to, to, to go and seek for that data? Mm. Um, so, firstly... Um, just that, and then we'll go into the people. Thank you. Yeah, so I grew up, I grew up working with animals. So, my first sort of career, part of my career was working with animals, not human beings. And when I got my first job and I started working in like traditional work, I just thought these people, like, I just felt my first instinct was these people are worse at communicating than the, than the animals that I work with. <laughs> as in, and English people are the worst at this Boniface. It's like if an animal is tired or hungry or scared, that it's really, they're really, really great at communicating that. Um, Human beings, especially English people, I'm picking on English people, um, really bad at telling you actually how they feel. And that that's what got me really interested. And I just thought, wow, this is a strange place <laughs> and I need to work out how it works. And I think most people who are listening, the first two or three years of your career are just learning the unwritten rules of how everything works and what someone really means when they say they'll get back to you or... Um, oh, that's a good idea, Matt. Really not a good idea. <laughs> um, and obviously that changes in different cultures all around the world. Um, and then you get you get great cultures and you get toxic cultures and all this stuff, which I'm sure we'll chat about. But my first bit was just, I was just really inquisitive when I got to work. I thought, this is a weird place. And I wasn't, I'm not talking about my employer specifically. Um, I'm talking about generally the world of work. I let me piggyback on the back of that because I'm French, as you know, and yeah. I came in England yeah. in my early twenties. And it, being French from the south of France, especially, there's you know there's a difference of culture, obviously, all through the country. But we are more of the Latin kind of French, where there's less of that. Yeah. You know, you're a bit more, maybe too much, actually. You know, if you look at speaking with my hands all the time, like Italians. Yeah. You know, like it's I have this thing, yeah. and we don't. And coming yeah. to England was was interesting to me because. It took me a while to to find this because I say, is this true? Is it not? And I'm not yeah. saying that I like you. They're not lying. It's not lying. It's just coating it in this very yeah. Yeah, English way that you just mentioned. That's an interesting. 
yeah. way and as a practitioner even more because i had patients very different you know french patients just come in strip off that okay you do it english people were very different in their approach yeah. culturally approaching symptoms and pains it's really different as well yeah and we and we see and we see that in the data and it and it there's personal experiences of it and then there's the data and and, and that's that that's the fa- that's the fascinating thing so coming to what you're really working on now called the happiness index which is a platform that i mean, I, w- I would like you to explain to us what it is and then we can kind of weave inside it and see all the data you've in, you've analyzed and how you you're going to create this index that you are talking about yeah so i suppose Again, I'm very inquisitive. So one of the things that I did is, is track down um, the, the person who invented employee engagement, someone called Bill Kahn, um, first person to coin it at Boston University in 1990. And I had a conversation with Bill um, only a few years back. And what I realized is he really doesn't like what employee engagement has become. And the reason I'm bringing this conversation up is because he doesn't believe um, that employee engagement um, uses emotions um, and it's become a very um, like very like mechanical robotic thing and that was my first sense again going back to how I felt work was when I first become an became an employer and um, we got up to like over 100 employees which is significant if people are aware of the Dunbar number so the Dunbar number is that 100 is generally the amount of relationships any human can maintain above that we start to struggle um so speaking to people like bill made me realize there's an opportunity to actually consider how people feel and what their emotions are and that perhaps blocking emotions out um is not necessarily the best idea and it's funny that you mentioned the sort of latin influence because sometimes i've had people from italy on my podcast and 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 they will even say things like when they've worked, I think I remember someone saying that when they worked in America, they, they were told they were too emotional and they were told they were getting too excited and they told they were um, getting too passionate about ideas and concepts. So you've got this like really dominant world Western view of how business should be run. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's right just because it's worked for such a long period of time. Um, and there's been huge advance, advancements in the world of work. But that's kind of where the happiness index concept came from, which was it was. I wonder if we could understand how people feel. And the conversation in the most English way ever did happen down the pub because we were thinking, I've never met an employee that talks about employee engagement ever. Just like I imagine, like I went I went to an osteopath uh, two or three weeks ago. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, but I don't go down the pub and talk about osteopaths ever. I'm sorry, Boniface, it's not a conversation to talk about. But we do talk about okay. our body. None taken. <laughs> but we do talk about our body. We talk about our well-being. We talk about where we're happy. So I also felt it was a bit, it had become like this big thing, this big, like, mo- not a monster, this big industry. Engagement had become this big industry. But, but it wasn't really addressing, like, the actual human needs. Because everyone talks about their friends down the pub, whether they're happy or not. So the Happiness Index is essentially an employee engagement and happiness platform and it brings in the emotional side. So you can see engagement is how your people think, as in what their brain needs. Um, and it, the, what their brain needs is just a storytelling element. I'm not specifically just talking about it from a scientific perspective there. And what we say is happiness is what the heart needs. Again, I'm not talking about it from a scientific perspective. I'm just talking about it from a um, from a philosophical perspective. And an energetic and love. I, I like the idea of trinity of head to hand is logical, but we are not logical beings. We are biological beings. So we need the head, the heart, and the hand. And this is where we've put the emotions, but obviously there are in other areas as well. I, I, I like the idea of emotions as well, because it's what defines us into this whole realm of, of sapiens. But we can talk about this later. Anthropology is a passion of mine, so I couldn't agree more with you. So how do you measure it? How does that, how does that kind of then appear into the data do you how do you how do you measure it yeah so it's the most difficult thing in the world to do because <laughs> if you take like so this we have like, asking yeah we have it like let's let's just take a classic um there's a really amazing program um and do you do show notes after butterfast is there, is there a link that i can um that we can add there's a 
there's an amazing historical program uh, comedy in the UK called Yes Prime Minister. Um, I think House of Cards on Netflix was built on Yes Prime Minister. There is an amazing scene in it, and I, I want everyone that's listening to this to seek out after this show the YouTube video and just go to YouTube now and type how to ask a leading question. And that will explain to you better the compl- complexity of asking human beings questions and how you can manipulate what you get uh, by what you ask. Okay, so I just want to give everyone how difficult what we're trying to do here is. So if we just talk about the CIA for a second, which you probably didn't expect us to be talking about today, but one of the bits of things that the CIA found out is if you ask feeling and emotion questions, they're harder to lie to. So if someone says to you, um, uh, did you rob the bank? Did you steal the money from the bank? That's easier to lie from than if someone said to you, how do you feel about all the families that, that lost their money? in that bank robbery because of the um, because of the money you took. Like one is harder <laughs> to lie to than the other because, it again, it moves it from the brain bit to our emotional bit. Um, and actually, we do talk about an emotional brain as well. So I, I'm just going to stop making that distinction for a bit. But um, effectively, we're asking employee engagement asks rational questions. We break that mold. We still ask rational questions, but we ask four types of questions. We asked her instinctive questions, emotional questions, rational questions and reflective questions. Um, and the reason I want to explain that to you is when you see, let, let's use an interview as an example. If someone sits down next to you in an interview, um, you'll immediately have your instinctive response to them. So let's say the person who sits next to you is seven foot two tall. You're, there may be an instinctive part of your response where you are you are intimidated by someone who is physically bigger than you. Your next response may be, and this is all happening in milliseconds, the, your next response may be that, oh, they look like your best friend. So suddenly you feel comfortable because, oh, okay, I, I, I recognize someone that's of that size that looks like that and they weren't a threat to me. The next bit is you're interviewing them and you're going through your rational piece of paper um, and you're saying, oh, have they got the experiences? Um, and then we also measure reflective responses because you may instinctively be intimidated. They may look like your friend and you like them. You may then rationalize their experience. But then two days later, your gut, you're sitting there, your gut's like, mm, I'm just not sure whether I'm going to hire Dave. There's something, there's something and I can't explain it. So um, to answer your question, we ask four different types of questions, whereas most traditional surveys are built on rational questions um, from the scientific world, which um, at the time, that was the, the, the best knowledge until we had things like neuroscience that's, that's helped us understand that even the question can intimidate someone. Even the words that you use can change um, what people will say. Like there's an assumption that most people sit at their desk wearing a white collar um, reading emails all day. Most workers around the world don't read email and don't sit at a desk. Um, and some of the questions that you may ask, they may not even... We, we have one client... 90% of their staff can't read or write. So sending a very, um, uh, an email, an email with, a, um, a, with a traditional question set written by an incredibly talented college professor may not, uh, might not be at one be able to read it, may not actually understand um, the word words. Then put that into 100 countries, Boniface. It is not the easiest thing in the world to do, but it's the four bits, it's the four bits, four types of questions I wanted to get into my answer. I love that. Thank you for sharing this, because this is uh, also really resonating with a, a, a neurological concept called neuroception, which I'm sure you know, which is exactly what you described, is that we're constantly evaluating three usually moments into which we have to react or not. Is, is it safe? Is it threatening? Or is it dangerous? And this is how we've built our, our primitive and reptilian brain to act and then choose which nervous system we're going to use primarily to the situation. So I love this because I always take the example of you react very differently if you are presented to Michael Jordan and Ricky Gervais. And it's, it's an instinct. You have no choice. You, ha- you know, you will, even though your rationality will kick in because you know these people or you've projected some kind of knowledge on them that is obviously not true because you don't really know them. But anyway, I, I, I love this, this idea of four layers. What you're talking about there, it was the origin, one of the original pieces of research and information that came in to the conversation seven or eight years ago about how we built that so 
it's it's great that you've made the link um, and because you're aware of it most most people you speak to are not but that's that is part of that that the the way that it was built there was there was real-time data overlaid to help rebuild and reinforce the models but just so you know you're absolutely spot on and where that where that model was um constructed i'm trying now to understand i know this is going to become a bit technical i don't want to go inside the platform itself but then you you collect this data you have all of and then where do you put the measurement where is the, the where do you put this is happiness this is not and we could maybe just there take a second to define a few words because i love semantics but in this instance it's really important because happiness is can be so broadly understood or how how do you define it and i'm sorry for this really tricky question but i'm sure you have a good answer for it especially coming from the happiness index it's such a hard question to ask i uh, sorry answer and it was the first question um, but it's but it's an important question especially for someone that is from the happiness index there is i think everyone's entitled to have their own personal view on what happiness is for me it's freedom right that's the most important thing um but what we what we did is we put together a team of neuroscientists and data scientists to run tests to work out what are the top what are the top things that um that impact happiness and impact engagement Now, I wanted to give you a couple of things. Engagement is very Western. It's a very Western thing that's used in Europe and North America. Um, one of the great things in, 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 our, in, in our early conversations that I was lucky to have is someone from Pixar who explained to me how all the Pixar movies are built on global emotions. Um, and the test is, we've, we have a French person, an English person on the call, and I'm sure we've got people around the world listening. The test on that, to work out whether Pixar are lying to me or not, and this was what he's, he said back to me, is we, we could go and get two of our friends, Bonifaz, you could find someone from Italy and I could find someone from Japan um, that could only speak one language and we could sit uh, and watch a Pixar movie on mute um, without, the, without the subtitles on and we could understand what's going on. So um, engagement is something that the business world that Bill Kahn invented and through its invention, like um, it's become reality. So there's a whole group of people that understand what engagement is um, and it has its own definitions and histories with it. Happiness is a global emotion that you don't need to explain to people what it is. So I just want to give that context because we are getting into it. But when we run the tests and look at across the 100 countries and try and, um, it's, it's more than 100 countries now, but try and take out the cultural differences What we find is the top four um, drives of, drivers of happiness are psychological safety, positive relationships, feelings of acknowledgement, and freedom to take opportunities. Um, people like to argue about which ones are engagement and which one's happiness, um, and I like to see that too. <laughs> um, the ones that are in engagement um, are aligned meaning and purpose, opportunities to grow, enablement to succeed, and clear direction. Now, that is a lot of data in neuroscience and a bit of quantum mechanics chucked together. But all I want to say to your listeners is really is that in, engagement, um, if you imagine a car, let's pick an electric car so we're green. Engagement is like that sat nav that's helping you the direction and telling you where you want to go um, and helping you navigate. Um, the, the happiness is the energy. It's the electricity. And the reason I, I wanted to share that is because every one of your listeners will have been in a relationship, whether that be a work relationship a friendship relationship or a romantic relationship where on the surface if you were to rationally tick the boxes of what made that relationship good you'd go tick tick like a job's perfect one good good uh, job title good status uh, comes with these perks great salary makes my parents proud um but it's deep down you know And that's the same in, in, in personal relationships, romantic relationships and so on. So that's where we, where we explain the differences when we're storytelling it. Thank you for sharing this. This is very good information. It's very well delivered. I, I want to say, I want to have two questions for you, but two thoughts. Um, one podcast we did was a, a question asked myself a lot and my patients. Am I healthy because I'm happy or am I happy because I'm healthy? And what that brings me, because you you are you were in marketing before, am I right to, to say that? Uh, I, I find it something interesting because I grew up, was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, and there was the cynical view in the 90s for people that were kind of starting to 
go a bit against the big flow of consumerism and capitalism saying, you know, we were becoming animals trying to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know. And that was really, for me, marketing, managed that, right? Creating a desire. And we thought, and we were selling to these people, it was going to be happiness. But we didn't say, buy this, you will be happy. We were saying, buy this, and you'll be happier. And that nuance was, was the genius of marketeers. Because if I was to say, buy this, you'll be happy, you could say, well, I bought it, I'm not, so you lied to me. But if I'm saying going to happy, you know, it's, up, it's subjective, it's to your own judgment, right? We understand this. But when I think about this, what's interesting here and what you're doing now is that we imagine that you're doing this because if you are engaged and if that brings happiness into the workspace, I guess that increases productivity. If this is the word we want to use, or at least it increases your, you know, your experience through work and therefore you work better, you're more, I don't know, you know the words, focus. And, but let's say productivity for the sake of, of it. And, you know, so it, what I'm interested in now to asking you, Matt, is, is this connection between, you know, so engagement, certain ha type of happiness and productivity at work. You focused a lot on this workspace. Do you relate through the same kind of, um, I was going to say, prism of through through normal life that is not work? Because I'm hearing a lot about the workspace, but can you do you relate to you know everyday life for us in the same way? Does that work? Yeah, so I think it's a really good parallel to draw, Boniface. And I think I just want to go back to your first point of your question around. Um, so I, I I started, built, and grew a modern marketing agency built built on data science. Now, the reason I want to bring that up is because the advertising you described in the 80s was genius, if you think about it just from a, a creativity perspective. It doesn't mean it was good, um, but some genius can be bad. Some people would say people who invented atomic weapons are, are good or bad, but some people would say it's genius, whatever. But most of that stuff was built on the best understanding of psychology. And the reason I want to bring this up, because the biggest threat to happiness right now um, it might, this is, I'm going into my opinion now out of my work mode, is actually social media. Now, social media is built on neuroscience. So they've taken the psychology stuff and built on neuroscience. So they know every time you're getting those little ticks and those little pings, it's hitting your dopamine reward signals. Although traditional marketing was kind of doing that, it is now marketing on speed. And, and I was part of that world moving from the traditional world um, to this new world. And actually... That's where, personally, I had my own awakening where I was thinking, I need to be using my knowledge in a better way. And, and I don't want to get too like, like philosophical here because I'm here to give you the data. But I personally did question um, where that was going. Um, and now as a parent of two children, I, am, I really question it. So I, even myself, um, I'm really aware of it's half term next week. I won't bring my phone with me as an example. So, so, but to answer your actual question, um, there's loads of studies out there that show that if you are if, if happiness, let's call it success for a second, um, because that can be, because I think as someone who's currently doing an investment round, there's a, the reason I use the word success is because financial numbers could be a success in a traditional round, but there's also other things like for example, how many people around the world are we giving a voice um, that are in an organisation where they have felt voiceless before? Is that success? So I think happier people um, can achieve success, but there's a real there's a real important point to, to work out what is success um, to do that. But personally, as an entrepreneur, and I, I wonder if there's ever listeners, I'm a much happier entrepreneur the second time around because I have the knowledge um, around my own health and for example, I've been for a run today because I knew I was coming on your podcast. I would not, in the past, I would have thought I didn't have time for that. Now I think, ah, oh, I'm going to be in a much better state uh, to come onto Boniface's podcast. So I look at it, I look at it more holistically, even in a board meeting. Like if I've not been for a run, I know if someone asks me a question, I can be go slightly into that um like reptilian part of the brain where I can be a bit more like, oh, that person's that person's attacking me because they're asking me about my numbers. Whereas if I've been for a run, I feel like I'm surfing the questions. I feel like, no, that's cool. They're just inquiring. It's fine. So I've learned about my own body and mind a lot more. 
I appreciate that you share this. I'm going to tell you why, and I, and I think that's going to make you laugh. Just before I had a pretty tricky day, and just before <laughs> 10 minutes before we started, I, I was like, I don't have time for exercise. I don't have time. And I was a bit taken away. And I said, I'm going to have a cold shower. So I literally went up to my bathroom and had a cold two-minute shower and came back down just for the same reason, just to try and bring center myself, bring it back, get the things out. You know, and, and I, this is growth as well, because even though I've been in the medical field for nearly 20 years, I realized how my mind was was washed in certain ways. I didn't understand all of that now. And neuroscience really and anthropology coming together and, and people like you trying to understand and taking that kind of new, not necessarily new knowledge, but new capacity of data analysis to understand the trends is, is quite fascinating. And I'm, in a way, I'm really hopeful. It's funny you mentioned the, the social media. I have a 13-year-old boy. I don't know how old your kids are, Matt, but I'm sharing this because obviously I have a three-year-old as well, and that's much easier to manage in terms of screens. But the 13-year-old, when you think about the intelligence that there is behind those screens and how many brains came together to try and get the brain of one 13-year-old kid always on it. And I explained this to him, and I think, for that matter, we should share that uh, the social dilemma, I think, was quite didactic in that way to show kids how what's happening behind it. Yet, it's, it's extraordinarily powerful. And we talk a lot about happiness because this is what I'm trying to make him feel. I said, oh, look, you do 10, 15 minutes on it. When I tell you to stop right here, right now, what do you feel? Always a bit of frustration. Always, he's always like, oh. And I'm like, you see, there's nothing that, that builds up towards even a natural feeling. So this dopamine that we can have said, because we can talk about, you know, the very physiological side of happiness, serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine, but all of that actually won't have a long lasting effect and quite the opposite. The body will respond counterproductively and you will feel bad biologically and therefore eventually emotionally as well. And it's quite fascinating to, anyway, I'm just sharing this because it's very, very at the front of my life right now, but coming. So, Matt, now I want you to understand something. Um, you, you, you say I was reading about you, and you say, "Yes, sorry." Do you mind if we just go back on that subject a no, little bit? No, because please, of course, I think it's such an important one for us to discuss. Because after the, one of the first, one of the original lockdowns, my daughter, um, who's eight, uh, really suffered from um, like anxiety. And for those that haven't experienced anxiety, most people who don't know about anxiety think it's kind of just like serious worry, like it's a next level up from worry. Um, but I just recommend everyone just to go and do some basic Googling. But when you see someone you love having a physical reaction, that's when you realise. And that's where I sort of, I was like, this isn't just her scared of going to school. There's, there's a physical reaction here. And, th and this, is your, this is your space, Bonifest. But the reason I wanted to bring it up is also the power of children because I felt with my daughter... I basically I told a few people about it and someone reached out to me in my space that um, that had is an experienced coach for adults um, and she actually offered to coach my daughter now my instinctive and emotional response is ah oh, that's weird like getting an eight-year-old daughter a coach is weird and am I going to feed the problem and then I then my rational brain kicked in and said no your responsibility as a father here is to 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 help your daughter and the reason I'm sharing this is because what's been fascinating is this coach has given what I would call my daughter tools, which is knowledge, which she can ignore or she can take on or whatever. But the reason I bring it up with the example of your son that, that I have found absolutely fascinating is my daughter um, has now passed on this information to some of her friends and my son. So I just wanted to bring it up for, just to remind everyone the power of children and and how amazing because social media is all about sharing but they can also um share this amazing stuff as well so i just wanted to share that i don't think uh, me and you are the only people with these challenges and I, I i make it my mission to share because i know there's a lot of parents out there that will be going through what you're going through with your son and what i'm going through with my daughter so i just wanted to take five minutes to share that thank you so much i you know i love when we go not too personal with personal because it it, it gives it gives it the truth of life but i will finish Let's, because we're on this subject, I will share the last bit about my son, which is interesting. The biggest issue we are finding is that he feels guilty for falling for it. 
Because once they've got to the stage of understanding the process, they feel they are being played, yet they lose. And, and now we are the next step of him kind of self-shaming and self-guilting himself. So it's not even, if I come in and I find him, he's, he doesn't really care that I tell him off or not. It's not about me anymore. And this is what it becomes, I find, coming to your point with your daughter, you're right, I work with a lot of people that have panic attacks and, and anxiety, emotional discharges, as we call it. And it's quite, you know, anyway, we know this. And, and may I ask you, you, you might share or not? I was just thinking, I was fascinated by how human that reaction is, actually, the guilt piece, because I have the same with chocolate. I, I know that I shouldn't eat loads of chocolate, but I'm a, sometimes I just have to finish whatever the chocolate's there. And and I do have that exact, I have that feeling of guilt afterwards and I feel like, why? I didn't even need that. Why have I done that type stuff? And it's, so I just find, I just find human beings fascinating. And I suppose it's the importance of education to continually to help us educate ourselves. Because I always think, I don't know if you think the same Boniface, when I think about my children, I think about my own my own phone. Uh, it's funny because I've got the old-fashioned phone behind us for the viewers. <laughs> but um, I always think it's me versus Mark Zuckerberg. That's what I was thinking in my head. I'm like, I've got Mark Zuckerberg. He's got billions trying to get my attention of my children, and it's me. So I, in my head, I create this me versus Mark Zuckerberg challenge that I have to live up to as a parent. That's, that's how I frame it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I feel just the same. I have to say, it's really funny. We, I said at the beginning, we might have, we, we feel the same on lots of things. I want to say something about your chocolate. Three things, very quickly. Number one, we forget that human beings, you know, that the whole history of sapiens is 100,000 years, 70,000 cognitive revolution, 12,000 agricultural revolution. For 97% of the time, we were actually hunter-gatherers. But what happened was that food was so scarce that we were programmed when we see something and food is there, we eat as much as we can. So actually, deep inside, we want to eat as much as we can when we have a chance to. That's one thing. Culture changed all that, obviously, and it's much better for our health. But it's also, we have so much now, right? The fact that you can eat all the time. I mean, we are lucky to be in places where we can. But that's also very, very different in the way you program yourself. But the thing funny about a habit or... I guess I'm going to say a pattern is this, you know, we create our habits and then the habits creates us. You know, you want to, you're not applied. Why? Because we are this humankind, which was the sapiens who was good at learning. And what is learning is repetition. So the more we do something, the more we create the pattern for it. And this is when all these three things together makes us want to do things that we might feel rationally not so good about. But at the time, we changed the storytelling just enough to justify the fact that we can do it. What's interesting in this is that it takes an immense amount of energy because we know that this thing pretty much consumes more than 60% of all the nutrients. You know, It's only 2% of the weight of the whole body and 20% of its activity is there. So when we kind of in this thing, this choice that we put ourselves through all the time, take the phone or not, it is, you know, this is also not wasting, but in a way wasting precious energy that we could use to much other things, but Things like even your immune system, so you're less ill. Things to resilience, recovery, anyway, all, all these things. So it's a fascinating process to be aware of this and then apply tools to change the habit. But uh, this is a whole subject altogether. For, for anyone that's listening that I think that is interested in, in what you're talking about there, which I found one of the most fascinating books I've ever, ever read, is just called Drink. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, a, it's a book about giving up alcohol, um, which I've done myself. Um, but it talks about some of the neuroscience in, in the area that Boniface is, is talking about. So if anyone is listening is interested, check out that book um, and, 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 get, and, and have a read. First and foremost, I will, because I, I haven't read it. And I'm still drinking alcohol, so that would be too good. <laughs> one bird, uh, one stone, two birds, brother. Sorry, I got my expressions wrong. Matt, I want to carry on just on two, 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 two more points. Um, so when you, you know, you, you, you gather information, you go through companies, I guess, they give you access, you give them, you know, the questions, the data comes back and you analyze all, you analyze all this. And then what do you do with it? So then you come back to, I guess, the HR or whoever, the, the CEOs of these companies. And how do you then engage the, 
once you have the data, how do you, what's, what is it, what's the tool that allows employees to get better, if I may? Yeah, so I said coming up with the questions was hard. This is the hardest bit. Because again, like, even with the chocolate thing, I'm aware of the, the data on the chocolate, <laughs> but it doesn't stop me. Smoking's another great example, isn't it? Like, so many people, you can't pick a, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but in the UK, it's literally got um, pictures of, like, like diseased hearts and lungs on the, so, you know, you clearly know the data says this is a bad thing, but people still smoke. Um, what, it's different. It really varies in the size of the company. So our biggest client is French, um, a company called Sodexo. They, um, they provide catering staff all around the world for, for venues um, like uh, Wembley Football Stadium and so on. So there, um, I can't remember the number of HR people, but for the data to sit with HR people, is not, it's not scalable for 400,000 people. Because it's not like they've got um, 40,000 HR people. I may be wrong, but I don't think they do. So there, because it's a venue-based organization, they need to empower the managers to have the information. Um, so the managers are getting the daily readouts of what, what, what people are worrying and stressing about. So let's take a venue that's got 1,000 employees. There could be something that's really um, worrying and stressing employees out. Um, in the smaller the company, the more the HR people deliver the message. Um, the most important thing, though, is that the senior leadership team and CEO are bought in on it. If they're not, it's a complete waste of time. Just like, I mean, you know this from a medical perspective, Boniface, but I have a, um, I have a, an auntie that worked in um, cancer care. And she said, she said to me that you can pretty much know who's going to recover and who's not by the way they talk when they first come in. Um, and it's like that with this information, like, if you really care about it and you care about your people, you will use that information to improve the culture. If you're just doing it because you want to win some awards uh, for marketing reasons, going back to my old world, which many companies do, and it's just pointless. And it's actually it's actually quite similar to, um, I always forget what the word's called, um, but when you're trying to create a, a fake reality. I think the most important thing um, is actually just sharing the information. This is how people felt. The CEOs that do it really well, if I think about the customers that have, that, that have really improved their cultures, it's also acknowledging where you can't fix stuff because employees will be unhappy about stuff that sometimes you can't fix. And what I've learned through the human experience of doing this with co companies all around the world is that, you know, that like movie quote, what is it? Um, you want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I think it's like um, I think it's like an American movie with Jack Nicholson in uh, where he loses it. And he's like, you can't handle the truth, that one. I'll send again. I'll send the link around. Bottom fast. It's a really famous American movie. But what I've learned is employees can handle the truth. What they can't handle is when people cover it up. And the reason that's an important human thing to discuss is because these are already people's thoughts already. So the data is how people are feeling, right? So it's already their thoughts. Then what happens is companies find it out, and then they try to pretend that that isn't the reality. And pretend that everything's okay, um, which actually makes it worse. So what you really need to do and what the, the companies where I see it done really well is a CEO stands up and goes, these are the things we've done well. This is what's not going well. And this is what we're going to focus on. Um, so and, and we call that empathy, really. Um, but that's where I think it's really impressive that when you see it done well. I... Thank you. That's really, really helpful to understand. That brings me to two questions, Matt. I'm just going to use you and your brain because I have you at hand. <laughs> Number, I have a question for you that is a tricky one for me. I'm married to an env environmental activist. We have a foundation for soil regeneration called Dirt and Biodynamics, a little bit advertisement right there. But... What's the biggest question I've had in the last seven years of this growth into that field is that you, because you mentioned it twice really well, knowledge, right? We want to share knowledge and we want to empower people through knowledge, knowledge being the best thing to share, because as long as I share it, it only grows exponentially because when I give it to you, I'm, I'm not losing it. It probably even increases in my mind because I've put it together to, to deliver it. But most importantly, now I know not everyone, because obviously it takes time for these ideas to spread but lots of people do know about climate change 
they do know about these things we talked today, behavioral analysis. They knew, they, you know, the knowledge is out there, which is the only good thing about this thing we're using now, right? Is that you can access knowledge at the click of a finger. But what about the conversion rate? What is it that you can see Seaspiracy, go to bed, maybe talk about it for a week in a few dinners because you're cool, maybe not, and then bam, a week later you're gone. And we know this because, you know, we've been projected to watch something terrible happening in a country somewhere and then the result of Manchester United West Ham, you know, like, so can we, sorry, this is a very long question, but this is the question coming up. I believe that we are animals. No, that's a really important point. Thank you. I believe we are animals. And what we forget in all this is that we are totally emotionally tacked into our sensoriality. Okay. I am, why can, can't people change because of climate change? Because they can't feel climate change. They can only imagine, hear, make up ideas about, but they don't feel it technically, apart from the people that are actually being moved because of water rising. But most people don't. So you're asking people to change on an idea and we know that they can do that because most of society is a storytelling and people have done crazy stuff around stories. But for some reason, those ones do not take on. And this is from all the data and the, all this work you've done for so many years around this. Do you have an idea of what and why is the conversion rate so low on good factual knowledge? Yeah, so I'm gonna. Oh, wow, I mean, this is a, a this is probably one of my most passions. Um, Bonifast, this particular subject, because when I was trying to understand customer, I realised I needed to go to employee to understand customer, like customer happiness. That's where I started, and I had to go to employee happiness. The more I work in employee happiness, the more I go to environment, um, and I mean that in both respects: the environment and the environment that we're effing up. Um, and I, I just want to go to a lesson from, it's going to sound really strange that I'm going to go to here, but um, I'm just going to talk about what we can learn from the Holocaust as an example, um, and also from the pandemic. So my um, my children um, are Jewish. And one thing that um, I found interesting about the beginning of the pandemic, and I'll come back to why I think that's relevant, is that because I'd spent time in China, um, I'm on WeChat. Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, we could clearly see that people were suffering in China, like, and that this was a bad thing and people were dying. In the, what, what, I found, what I just found crazy about human beings, specifically in the West, is all it was, all the press was about is, is the Chinese government, right? Uh, which is another conversation for another day about what's happening in China and, and, and um, from an Islamic background, which sounds horrific from what I understand. Um, but what was missed in the story was these people that were actually dying. And it wasn't until the pandemic came to Europe that it becomes about the people dying and the politics sort of goes away. And the reason a, a sociologist, I spoke to a sociologist about this, he said, it's a similar thing when you're something like the Holocaust, which, and it goes back to the Dunbar number, which is Something like the Holocaust is so big for so some people. It's such a big group identity of people that it's hard for many people to actually be able to empathise and understand. So I'm just going to move forward on this a little bit because I want to give everyone the context and I want to give someone a, a, an example of someone that I've interviewed. Um, so I interviewed someone because I read the headline, Soil Makes You Happy. So if I find out about happiness research, I contact the professor and I get them on my podcast. That's 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 what I do. Um, because I'm like, wow, what is this? How does soil make you happy? Um, and the reason I want to come back to this is this is a... Yeah, so this is a fascinating thing about research and, and, and information. And I, and I will answer your question. Um, is that soil has a bacteria in it um, that triggers um, serotonin in your brain in the same way that Prozac does. So this is this isn't new research, right? This has been around for over 15 years. So as far as I'm concerned, this is a piece of information that everyone should know and should be taught in school. Um, and I just going back to your point, Boniface, which is I actually going to go full circle here, which is I think people who have data 
need to improve their ability to work with storytellers and creatives because if you take someone like Donald Trump, right, you can rationally explain why Donald, what Donald Trump is doing is disgusting and wrong when he talks. But it doesn't change the reality that lots of people believe it, believe in him, because whether you like him or not, he is a storyteller that many people believe his story. So I know I could have answered this in one sentence, but I think the data people... No, it's good. The data people and the storytellers of the world need to work more closely together to get these stories out. Because in a world where you can make up something um, and just put your story out there, the value on storytelling, and this goes back to your your sapiens point of 100 to 200,000 years, that's how human beings learn. We learn around the campfire and around the story. So I don't have a full answer to your, to your question other than I think human beings and the data piece needs to come together with humans to tell it on a more personal level. So that, that would be my long answer through loads of history and neuroscience. That's very good. Thank you. I like it. Two things that came to my mind as you were saying this. The first thing is about Trump. And this is not from me at all. It's from Mike Harris. He said something just before the election, which really stuck with me. It's like, why? Why Trump? Why? One of the things of the storytelling you were mentioning is also him allowing you to be a bad version of yourself. And no politician today does that. We're coming into a big election in France for the new president in April. And it's a fascinating thing. Most of the populist idea allow people to eat chocolate all the way to it's fine all the other ones are incriminating you what you eat chocolate no you should go for a run and meditate and do a course you know and this is an interesting way so we all have our little bias of, and he and others like him are crass and big and they think like we i do what i want so it gives a sense of power which is absolutely nonsense but also they allow you this this is my first point my second point, and I really on what you've just said, is from Hariri, not in Sapiens, long, long after, actually from a discussion with him and, and, and Bregman, where they speak about something interesting, which is it's very difficult to understand that some very clever, rational people who can create incredible, rational data collecting organization can also totally be driven by an absurd idea. And what brings me to this is the Holocaust. When you think about Heichmann, for example, who designed the whole transportation of Jews all the way through Europe, like the most incredible rational brain organization, why was he doing this? For an absurd brainwashing that ultimately was saying, well, you know, there's a conspiracy that Jews are controlling the world and we need to kill them. You know, like, what? But yet, those two can cohabit in one's brain. And when you get this, then you understand the complexity of this. But I hope and this is the work you do. And when I, I love that you seek for people, you know, calling for happiness, I really do think you should have a chat with my wife because she definitely has said many times that soil makes you happy. Um, and you would find a lot of, 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 of things to chat about. But I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of, of that of that growth of yours, of, you know, having had, you know, where I'm going to be a bit mean here, you know, being in the evil side of selling stuff, right, that most people didn't need, for example, and then turning it out into understanding, making people feel better, be better, act better. And the workspace is a place where we should try and thrive and feel, you know, we spend a lot of time working in this life. But, you know, as we say, if you're happy at work, you never work one more day in your life, right? So... I guess that's what you'll manage to doing. I have one more question that we're getting to the end of it. I'm sorry. I love this conversation and I, I hope we can have more. Um, this is my last question, but you can say as many more things as you want. Are you happy, Matt? Oh, that is a, that is a great, that is a great question. I would say I am happy and unhappy. Um, and it changes throughout the day. It changes throughout the year and it changes throughout um, the, the minutes and that's what makes human beings um, who we are. So I would. that's my last point, is that don't feel bad in a normal day when you feel happy and unhappy. We're not called the high happiness index. We're called the happiness index. And all your emotions are there 
um, to teach you something. They are data points um, and not to feel bad um, that if you wake up in the morning and don't feel great, it's totally normal. So um, I am happy and unhappy, Boniface. <laughs> well done. This is it. It's the balance of the world. It was written 3,000 years ago. It's the yin and yang is all of that. With one thing, the intangible power that brings things together, which I want to actually, I'll do this to finish. <laughs> A lot of the biodynamics, and I'm a physician at start, is the intangible, the things we can't measure. And it's not because you can't measure it that it doesn't exist. And what, again, speaking about paradox, people, everyone on this planet will agree that love, charm, attraction exists, but you can't grasp it. You can't measure it, yet it exists. And when you say, well, there's this similar intangible energy that exists between trees and plants, we can't measure it, but it's there. No, it can't be there. You know, it's interesting that we don't, transport ourselves and de deconstruct us to be able to think in a different way uh, boniface for your listeners I have one, can i have one can i have one test for all your listeners to do that will prove your point correct go for it please you don't it doesn't have to be the Loch Ness monster um but i chose the Loch Ness monster i went to find the Loch Ness monster i did not see the Loch Ness monster but the Loch Ness monster exists <laughs> Because if you go to Loch Ness, you will find the Loch Ness Monster because it, it exists everywhere on Loch Ness, the Loch Ness Monster. So find, go and find whatever you, go and try and find whatever your mythical thing is and you'll have loads of fun. And I guarantee you will find it because it, that's where belief comes into it. Maybe that's another conversation for another day. Another day. Thank you so much. Guys, thank you so much for joining. Um, I want you to go and check on the Happiness Index, it's an amazing platform. You learn more about all the things and how it works, what we've discussed today. I want you to read a book, Freedom to Be Happy, that this gentleman here wrote. And I think that also is always, you need to, we need to learn. We need to share knowledge. So if there's one thing that you've learned today or you liked, share it with one person, maybe 10 even, but let's say one, because that's how this happiness community can grow. Um, and I think that's how we have to work, sharing and loving this idea of learning. That's what, how I would try and do my life for the next few years anyway. We'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> Thank you so much, ma'am. I know you're very busy, so I really appreciate you coming here. It was lovely. I love that conversation. I hope you guys did too. Thank you so much for listening. Find us on Spotify, Una Series Podcast. We're on Apple as well. And please share it if you like it. Thank you. Bye.